Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. There he gathered together with the workmen and similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Here ends the reading. Please bow your heads with me as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this chance to be together this morning. We thank you so much, Father, for the love you have placed between us by your Spirit. We pray that you'd be pleased now to be with us again in a powerful way to open our ears and hearts, put away from us all the distractions that keep us from hearing us, hearing you, and give us grace, Father, that we might not only hear your word, but believe it, obey it, Father, and rejoice in it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. 
The book of Acts, as we've seen, uh, deals with all kinds of mission issues. I've made the case, I'll say again, I think the book of Acts can be understood a little bit as a mission manual. It's a, it's a book that's written for the apostolic church, but also for us, uh, the heirs of the apostles, as we seek to be witnesses to Jesus in our day. I think the book of Acts is actually intended to give us guidance, to help us to understand and to be effective in the ministry that has been entrusted to us in our day. Uh, we have certainly seen a, a number of examples of mission outreach in different cities across uh, the ancient world as Paul made his way from, um, from the Holy Land where he began and, and uh, took his ministry from Antioch uh, to uh, Ephesus and across the known world. Uh, tradition says he made his way to Rome, and that he may have even made his way to Spain. It's not clearly known that he did that, but that was certainly one tradition that uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ have put forward. It's not impossible. He certainly talks about his wide-ranging travels, and we do know he went places that aren't specifically recorded in the Bible. But in any event, this, this book is meant to describe not only Paul's mission, not only the mission of the apostolic church, but our mission. How, how can we learn from Paul's experience and the experience of the church in its infancy? Uh, one of the things that uh, the book of Acts does is lay out a series of problems, uh, basically usually centered around an anecdote, a story of something that happened in the life of the church. And that's true in the passage we're going to look at today. There's at the middle of this important lesson, this important discussion, there's a story, and the story has to do with a problem that was encountered in Ephesus. And I, I'm going to describe the problem as, as cultural conflict. It's, it's where the message of the gospel comes into conflict with the prevailing culture. Uh, Acts deals with several such problems. We saw last week that the problem of nominal Christianity was very much uh, in uh, Focus as we learned about the seven sons of Siva and the problem of nominal Christianity. Today we're going to learn about the problem of cultural conflict. Uh, a few years ago while I was in seminary, I read a book called Christ and Culture. Maybe you've read it, maybe you've heard of it. It's written by a man named Richard Niebuhr. It's written in 1951, so it's uh, written a long, long time ago. But it's amazingly current in what it deals with. Uh, the book opens with this description of the problem. A many-sided debate about the relations of Christianity and civilization, or you could say culture, is being carried out in our time. Historians and theologians, statesmen and churchmen, Catholics and Protestants, Christians and non-Christians participate in it. It is carried on publicly by opposing parties and privately in the conflicts of conscience. In this situation, it is helpful to remember that the question of Christianity and culture is by no means a new one. That Christian perplexity in this area has been perennial, and the problem has been an enduring one through all the Christian centuries. Niebuhr actually walks through this problem of conflict, cultural conflict specifically, and he lays out a number of historic responses. There's uh, Christ versus culture, Christ in culture, the paradox of Christ and culture. 
and he concludes with a chapter on Christ transforming culture. And it's a very interesting book. I recommend it to you. He lays out some, some interesting ideas. And one of the examples of the church's engagement with culture is here in Acts chapter 19. Uh, here is an early and very important illustration of the conflict that the church will often find itself in. And I want to bring you that as a, as a backdrop to what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, it would be helpful if you have open in front of you the passage that uh, was read for us uh, just a moment ago, Acts chapter 19. It's a privilege to be able to read God's Word as part of the sermon. Uh, but I'd, I'd like you to have it open in front of you. You'll find it either as a bulletin insert or you can turn in the Bible, the Pew Bible, to page 1181. And we discover here in this section that this idea of cultural conflict has, uh, in this particular story, three dimensions. Three dimensions. The way versus many ways, I'm going to suggest, is the very first dimension of this ongoing cultural conflict in Paul's day and in ours. Uh, the passage opens in verse 21 by a reminder that what Paul is doing here is, is not simply Paul's personal agenda. It actually reflects his intention to go in step with the Spirit. Paul's intending, he's resolved, it says, to do something as he believes he's being led by the Spirit. So according to Luke, who's writing this story down for us, uh, this is Paul's attempting to go exactly where the Spirit was leading. In other words, Paul wasn't here deviating from God's plan. Uh, he believes this is in accord with God's plan. That's what it says in verses 21 and 22. Uh, Paul decides to stay in Asia, which includes uh, Ephesus, for a while. And in verses 23 to 27, we discover that immediately Paul enters into this cultural conflict specifically in terms of a conflict in the relationship of uh, people's relationship with the eternal, with, with God uh, and, and the, the expression of God there in the environment. It says in verse 23, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way. Uh, notice the article. It's the way. Uh, Christianity in the book of Acts is often described as the way. It's not a way. It is the way. It was the way of life. It was the way of following Jesus. It was the way of following the apostles. It was the way of following the Holy Spirit as he led the church forward in its mission. Well, there arose what is called, in understatement, no little disturbance. We're going to see what a disturbance, what a conflict there is here in Ephesus about the way. Verse 24 for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis. Artemis was the, the Greek god of the hunt. She was the god of the moon. She was uh, sort of the, the chosen deity for Ephesus. They had a magnificent temple there in Ephesus. Well, it says, uh, Demetrius says that making shrines to this goddess brought, he says, no little business to the craftsmen. That's how he uh, that's how Luke summarizes this part of Demetrius' statement. 
he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in also all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. The big conflict that Demetrius had, and apparently these other people around with him, and, and actually the, the conflict that ripples through this angry crowd that we're going to hear about, has to do with this idea of the way versus many ways, including in this case Artemis, the, the, the goddess of the moon, the, the goddess of the hunt. Uh, according to Demetrius, uh, Paul had said, that a God made with human hands is no God at all. And no doubt Paul did say something like that. That's what the Old Testament has to say. That's certainly consistent with the claims of Christ. And so Paul apparently had some success in telling people about the way, the one God, the true God of the Scriptures. And there were, according to Demetrius himself, there were many people uh, who had... Uh, turned from uh, other gods, including Artemis, to worship Christ. Um, the first century was a time of great religious pluralism. The Roman Empire had brought people from many countries and many ethnicities and many religions into closer proximity than really ever before. People of many religions found themselves living next to one another under the authority of the Roman Empire. Everything from the polythe polytheists of ancient Rome, who had a whole pantheon of gods, including Artemis and Zeus and others. Uh, they had a whole pantheon of gods. That's the way they understood the life of the divine. It was really like a big, unruly, messy family. And that was the, the idea that the ancient Greeks and the Romans after them had sort of understood the life of the deity was this big, unruly family, and that's the way they viewed it. But it was also broad enough to include Jews who were here in this part of the Roman Empire, here in Ephesus, far away from Jerusalem, far away from uh, the Holy Land. Here they were in Ephesus. They were living their Jewish faith next door to the polytheists. And there were all sorts of other gods represented here in Ephesus and across the Roman Empire. And one of the realities of life in the ancient Roman Empire was that all of these people with all their diverse backgrounds were living next door to each other, sometimes literally. They were, they were constantly aware of, of this, this other, uh, the otherness of the people around them. That was very much the first century world under Rome. Uh, that that, that multicultural, multi-religious, religiously, religiously pluralistic culture. Uh, that was the world of the first century. That was the world of the book of Acts. And that's the backdrop to this mission manual. Uh, Paul was writing to a church that had to engage with that. They had to engage with this religiously pluralistic world. One of the realities of ancient religious life, uh, and, and really all the religions shared this, was the, the idea that every god had his or her special place. Uh, they were bound to this temple, and that temple represented them and was, in a sense, their home. It was a place of special honor. And 
every single ethnicity, sometimes every single city would have its own special relationship with a God. And that was true here in Ephesus. The people of Ephesus for some time apparently had chosen the goddess Artemis as their special deity. She was their local god. She was the one to whom they prayed. She was the, whom, the one to whom all the public officials and apparently the whole economy was kind of built in relationship to this goddess Artemis. Well, in contrast to this first century understanding of religious pluralism, along comes the apostle of the way. This isn't a new problem. Israel had this problem from the very beginning. Because contrary to all the religions of the ancient Middle East, uh, the people of Israel had had revealed to them this perfect one God who wasn't simply a local deity who kind of ruled over the people of Israel. He ruled over the whole world. And in fact, the Old Testament very often gives glimpses of the idea that this God of the whole world who reigns over everything, who loved Israel, had a message through Israel for the whole world. We actually see glimpses in the Old Testament of this sovereign God who reigns over everything and who cares about, for instance, the people of Nineveh. God actually commissioned a prophet, Jonah, to go to Nineveh with a message calling for repentance, a call to a kind of the beginnings of a relationship. So this was right through the Old Testament, and it's certainly true here in the book of Acts. As it begins to dawn on the church, as it begins to dawn on Paul and those around him, God had a message for the whole world, a message of God calling people to relationship through Jesus Christ who is the way incarnate. And so Paul had been going, Acts uh, chapters 1 to 18, highlight Paul and others in the church who were taking this message from the first Pentecost forward to today, this message of God reaching out in love to the whole world, calling people to the way, to the, the way of life, the way of blessing, the way of peace, the way of reconciliation, the way of life in God. Well, the religious pluralists didn't like that. It, it did impact, apparently, their, li their livelihood. If you want to get someone really, really angry, mess with their livelihood, the way they support themselves. It's not entirely clear that Demetrius was crazy about Artemis, but he was crazy about the money he got because of Artemis. And very often, it's when you deal with money and economics that that you get people really, really stirred up. Well, that's what had happened here in Ephesus. Paul's preaching had gotten crossways, apparently, with this Artemis, this Demetrius, and, and those like him, these other businessmen, craftsmen, who earned their living uh, through the worship of Artemis. So there's this conflict between the way and the many ways. How dare Paul say that there is only one way? And that all these other gods are false gods. How dare Paul say that? So they became more and more incensed. They became angrier and angrier. You know what? If you think about it, that not that our world today? Uh, we live in a world that's fairly content for you to have your God so long as you just mind your own business and leave me alone with it. Don't, don't tell me about your God. I don't want to hear about your God. 
I have my God and my livelihood and my way of looking at things. And if you'll just shut up about yours, we'll get along okay. That was a little bit like first century Rome. The first century Roman Empire was a little bit like that. Over it all was the state religion. So you better mind the state religion, but otherwise you could just do your own thing as long as you left me alone. That's the world we live in. We, we, we actually hear it from time to time, people saying, uh, your religion is your private affair. Just keep it to yourself. You ever, has anybody ever said that to you? If you dare to say anything about what you believe about God or what you believe about what God wants us to do, however carefully and sensitively you put it, uh, people will get stirred up. And I've noticed people are getting really, really stirred up today. It's ironic in a culture that has been so shaped by Christianity to be living in a time when you can hardly sometimes mention Christianity. Uh, there, there are places where Christianity is not welcome in the discussion. The Bible is not welcome in the discussion. It's more than ironic that a, a place has been so shaped by Christian values, so shaped by the teaching of the scriptures, would reject the scriptures. It's, it's, a, it's a terrible, terrible thing. Our, our world is similar to what Paul encountered. So, there's this lesson here for us that, number one, brace yourself for this conflict. Don't be surprised by the conflict. It's amazing to me how often we as Christians can be so surprised. And yet, the scriptures tell us that Jesus was hated by the world and you and I will encounter that ourselves. We've actually been very fortunate that the exception has been when Christians were not rejected. That, that's actually the exception, not the rule. The rule is that if we dare to proclaim an exclusive God who speaks and calls us to obedience, if we dare to say that, there are going to be people who hate us for it. We learned that all the way back in Acts chapter 19. In fact, we've learned it already in Acts, and we'll learn it again and again in Acts as this message continues to be debated. Reinhold Niebuhr said, sorry, Richard Niebuhr said years ago that this is nothing new, and it is nothing new. We live in a situation where Christ is very much in conflict with culture, and the way we view that will very much affect the way we do mission. So the way versus many ways. There's a second thing. That has to do with anger and confusion. The, the, the conflict between the way and the many ways uh, issues forth in more and more anger and more and more confusion which erupt into chaos. Verses 28 and 29 sort of sum up this this ongoing struggle. When they heard this, that is when they heard what uh, was said about Paul and the response from him, uh, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. Intense anger leads to intense confusion. 
Intense anger and intense confusion lead, as they always do, eventually to violence. When, the, when their emotions and their feelings just swept through them, there came a point when they simply did physically what they were doing emotionally. They erupted. And there was this terrible display of violence. It, it describes it in, in this, this sort of this chaotic picture. Uh, they, they grab a couple of people uh, who were simply companions of Paul. Uh, Paul's apparently somewhere else. He's eager to go into the debate, it says. Uh, he was eager to go out among the crowd in verse 30. But the disciples actually hold him back. They don't want him to go out there because they knew what was about to happen. There would be violence. So his friends actually keep him from going out. The disciples wouldn't let him go. Verse 31, some of the Asiarchs, that's sort of like this, the legislature, sort of like the state legislature, the provincial legislature, these representatives from all over the province of Asia, of which Ephesus was a part, all these leaders who were gathered together, a little bit like the state legislature that just uh, is doing what it does in, in Austin, these representatives from across the province who were actually apparently some of them friends with Paul, they persuaded Paul, urging him not to do this, not to go into the theater because they could see that this terrible anger and confusion was going to lead somewhere really, really ugly. So in verse 32 it says, Some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know what they had come together, why they were there. <laughs> I mean, isn't, isn't that realistic? Uh, haven't you seen that? Uh, I mean, lately, uh, I'm sure you follow with me all the unfolding news of the conflict and, and very often the violence in our culture. And very often you realize there are people caught up in this who really aren't even clear what the heck is going on. They're just sort of caught up in it. Why are we here? And they get swept into the violence. It's very predictable, this anger and confusion. It, it erupts in this violent outburst. Well, that's, as I say, not just first century. It certainly happened here in Ephesus long ago, but it happens today as well. Choose your, your recent example of cultural chaos to, just to see the parallel. Uh, the riots in Minneapolis and Portland or the riots in Washington at the nation's capital, these, these violent explosions of angering people very confused, people no idea what they're part of, just swept along in this ugly, ugly violence. The roll call of cultural conflict, even in our day, has become longer and longer and more and more violent. I'm going to make everybody mad with what I'm about to say because all of that, all of that is cultural conflict with the gospel. When it erupts in violence that way, when there is, when there is so much anger and so much confusion, that is never the work of the gospel. That is the work of the enemy of the gospel. Debate, discussion, those are the work. Those are the work of the Holy Spirit, which draws us to discussion, to dialogue, to, to serious debate. But anger, confusion, and the kind of violence that we see here in Acts 19, that is not the work of the gospel. That is a rejection to the gospel. 
Um, G.K. Chesterton is one of my favorite authors. Maybe you know him. He was a, a fiction writer, uh, a theological person, a Roman Catholic, who wrote a lot in the early 20th century. And one of his books that I love is called The Man Who Was Thursday, A Nightmare. Maybe you know this book. It's, it is very interesting. A friend recommended it to me, and I've been reading it. Uh, in it, two men who are identified at the beginning of the story as poets, Lucian Gregory and Gabriel Syme, are introduced. And uh, Gabriel um, is a uh, man, a poet, who's arguing, debating with Gregory, who is an anarchist, uh, sort of an old-fashioned word for someone who just rejects government and is angry, confused and angry. And they get into this debate in the first uh, few pages, and this is explored in the rest of this book. Simon has met him at a dinner party, and they get into this debate about anarchy, political chaos, violence, etc. And Simon asks Gregory this question. He says, first of all, what is it really all about? What is it you object to? To abolish God, said Gregory, opening the eyes of a fanatic. We do not only want to upset a few despotisms and police regulations. That sort of anarchism does exist, but it is a mere branch of the nonconformists. We dig deeper and we blow you higher. We wish to deny all those arbitrary distinctions of vice and virtue, honor and treachery, upon which mere rebels base themselves. The silly sentimentalists of the French Revolution talked of the rights of man. We hate rights, and we hate wrongs. We have abolished right and wrong. Right at the beginning of the book, he sort of sets the stage that these political anarchists, whatever you want to think of them, that there, there were those who were maybe well-intentioned. They were the, the mere nonconformists. We can debate those separately. But what Chesterton is pointing out through this exchange is that at the very deepest level, the conflict is not simply between ideas, it's between the idea of ideas. It's, it's, it's the idea that there is a right and a wrong. And what is actually at, at uh, debate here is whether there is a right and there is a wrong. Every person should be left to their own decisions. Every person should make up their own minds. You have your opinion, I'll have mine, leave me alone. That's the backdrop. That's what's actually going on. And so much of the confusion, even in our day, Chesterton, Chesterton was writing a long time ago, uh, but we see the same thing today, and we see the same thing here in Acts 19. What's actually at issue here is, is not simply a debating point. It's, it's a whole worldview. There are those today, maybe on every side of every political discussion, who reject the idea that there is a God who reigns over these things. There is a God who has spoken, who has called us to himself. That is called the way, the way. And no matter how gently we preach it, how sensitively and carefully we pre preach it, there are those who reject it at its core. The very idea that there is a God is deeply infuriating to them. And it issues in this anger and this 
uh, terrible confusion, and ultimately in violence. And you see so much evidence of that in 21st century America. I, I want to say carefully something. Uh, last week I mentioned uh, something that I believe the U.S. church, the American church, uh, is in need of repenting of. And I said that we, we had uh, we'd made some mistakes in our mission to the world. And I, I do want to make clear, as I'm sorry if I didn't make it clear last week, America did not invent that problem. Okay, we're not the only ones. I would say that is, that is a perennial problem. That is an ongoing struggle with every society. I'm very aware of our issues as an American. But the fact is the church is engaged in this debate in every country, in every culture, every language. The church did not invent this conflict with culture. We're not unique in the sense of having the problem, although we have a unique expression of it. We, we do it in our own way here. And i got to tell you, as an American, it breaks my heart to see the anger and confusion going on around us. As an American, it breaks my heart. As a Christian, it breaks my heart to see this terrible anger, this terrible, explosive, violent conflict all around us. It's devastating. It's nothing new, brothers and sisters. It is nothing new. We did not invent it, did not start here, but we experience it here. Well, the book of Acts wants to prepare us for that. It wants to prepare us for the reality of anger and resentment and conflict and even violence. It will happen. We will experience it. And who knows? There's some indications it's getting worse and worse. There's some indications that our kids and our grandkids, they may face a level of it that we haven't had to face before. I don't want to be doom and gloom because there is a God who reigns over everything. But I will tell you, they're really troubling signs. We've got people here who work in the academic world who deal with college professors and college students. and They will tell you it's not easy to be a Christian these days on America's college campuses. Uh, very often you're expected to shut up, keep it to yourself. Well, that's the world of Acts 19. That's the world we live in today. The story doesn't end there. And I, I want to say this last section may be the most important part. Made, he's made us aware of the problem. Now in the third part, he's going to give us a hint at our engagement with the problem. Look at the uh, third part, which I've called the, the gospel versus culture, verses 35 to 41. Um, this story comes to a dramatic conclusion. It's a bit of a surprising conclusion because what happens is the town clerk stands up. It's very interesting. The, the last few chapters of Acts have a lot to say about town clerks and, and councils and government gatherings, and judges, and emperors, and kings. It's very much the church engaged with institutional culture. We'll see a lot of that. We'll hear in verse 35, of all people, the town clerk at Ephesus stands up. He quiets the crowd, and then notice what he says. Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. We're not sure what the heck that's about, the, the stone that fell from the sky. Apparently there's a good dose of superstition mixed in 
here in Ephesus? Well, we all apparently know about that, he says. Verse 36. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. And then notice verse 37. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. I want to pause for a second and reflect on verse 37. Now we know the charges against Paul. Demetrius makes those very, very plain. Apparently Paul's been going around arguing that idols and statues are not actually gods at all. Apparently been successful at that. There have been many people who've turned to Christianity across Asia. So we know the charge against Paul by Demetrius. But notice the defense given not by the, for instance, the Jew, Alexander, who'd been appointed and had no opportunity to speak when they heard that he was going to speak and they discovered he was a Jew. In verse 34, it says, For two hours, can you imagine, for two hours the crowd cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, for two hours. So the Jewish speaker didn't even have a chance to bring any kind of defense, whatever he was going to say. He didn't even have the chance. But the town clerk, interestingly, is the one who brings this defense and you know, it, it's, it's interesting the defense comes not from Alexander. It doesn't even come from Paul at this point. Paul doesn't stand up at this point and make a defense. He's not really being encouraged by his disciples and friends to go and be a part of the debate. He's, he's listening to the debate. No, the defense is actually offered by, an, I guess you could say, in some sense, sort of an objective observer. And it's the town clerk, nameless to us, who is the one who brings the defense. And what is the defense? That Paul and these other men are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of Artemis. Now, it's interesting that is the defense. That they're not guilty of what the crowd is saying they're guilty of. He doesn't say that Paul did not debate and argue and make his case apparently pretty persuasively. There were those who responded to it. Town clerk doesn't deny that the debate happened. What he points out is that Paul did not come in in a way that should provoke violence. He, he came in reasonably. He came in as one who displayed reasonableness. We've seen this again and again in Paul. He, he tells the Philippians that, let your reasonableness be evident to all. And over and over again, we hear that Paul goes, and what does he do? He reasons. He, he goes in among them and he reasons with them. He makes his case. In other words, he doesn't attack them. He doesn't become furious at them. He doesn't himself do anything violent. He doesn't himself do anything that's unreasonable. Paul comes in reasonably and makes his case. Now, there are people who get very angry at him. They hate him for it. But the fact is, Paul had been reasonable in the voice of this objective observer. No hint is given that this man was particularly sympathetic to Paul. He's simply the town clerk, and he's observing the way Paul has been doing what Paul had done. 
Now, I want to suggest to you there's an important, a very important lesson for us. The lesson is not that we will never ex experience conflict. We will. The lesson is how are we called to be witnesses to Jesus? How are we called to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ into the messed up, confused, angry, violent world where we live? Now, there are a couple of different ways you can do that. You can come in yelling at people and hitting people. You can do it by various expressions of force, using whatever force is at your disposal to shut other people up. You can use the state. You can bring in laws that make it illegal to disagree with someone who's got a religious message that we find favorable, that we like. We could pass laws that it's against the law to say anything contrary to what we believe. We could, that's one response. But that's not Paul's response. That's not what Paul did. Paul did what I hope we will do. Paul did the infinitely harder and the infinitely more Christ-like thing of coming in among people, loving them, telling them the truth. You don't water down the gospel, but you present the gospel with reasonableness. You present the gospel with having taken the care to prepare yourself, to, to engage thoughtfully, carefully, sensitively, lovingly, and boldly the truth of Jesus. Now, I'm not in any way suggesting that if you try to do that, you will not have conflict. You will. You will have conflict. No matter how careful you are, you will have conflict. The perfect example of that is Jesus Christ himself, who we know was meek and mild. There's a book about that. Gentle and lowly. That is Jesus. Jesus did everything he did with gentleness and humility. That's the way he did everything that he did. He did what he did boldly, but he did it with gentleness. And yet, Jesus winds up on a cross. I'm not saying that if we try to be reasonable that we'll get along with everybody and there won't be any problems. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that let's let the observers, those who haven't yet made up their mind, the town clerks all around us who are watching how we present the gospel, may they see in us something like Paul's reasonableness, Paul's carefulness, Paul's awareness of the context, Paul's willingness to humble himself to be all things that he might win some. Not compromising the message, but being willing to be humble and lowly like Jesus. In this mission manual, that's something the church constantly has to learn and relearn and relearn and relearn. That we are bold witnesses who are humble and lowly like Christ. Bold witnesses who try to be reasonable to listen to people, to engage them meaningfully, not just to yell at them, but to engage them. That is very, very hard work to do. And yet that's what the church is called to do.
Let your reasonableness be evident to all, Metrocrest. We're going to be charged. People are going to get mad at us no matter how sensitive we are, how careful we are. But let the, the observers see in us Christ-likeness. That's what Paul was trying to do in Ephesus. That's what he's trying to do everywhere he goes. Let's try to do the same thing. Let's try to live out that call to Christian mission in humility with carefulness and thoughtfulness. It won't necessarily affect how the world views us, but it will make a difference for eternity because, brothers and sisters, the way we do our mission has everything to do with our mission. If we don't do our mission in a Christ-like way, they're not going to see Christ in us. Well, Paul has a lot more to say about this. We're going to see over the next several chapters as this book winds down. We're going to see how hard that is and how important it is.